Hearing the news of Saul and Jonathan's death, David takes up a heart-wrenching lamentation. This is the second sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel in chapter 1, beginning in verse 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 27. 2 Samuel in chapter 1. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he bade them to teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How art the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is violently cast away, the shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death, They were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hath thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 34 and verse 35. Jesus speaking in his own lamentation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now once the message of Saul and Jonathan's death reaches the ears of David and his army, naturally they are filled with great heaviness and extreme sorrow. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12, And they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. To be slain by the enemies of God in such a, a dreadful and vicious and violent manner was a humiliation for both Saul and the entire nation of Israel. It's not just Saul's humiliation. It was not just Jonathan and his brother's humiliation. But it was the entire nation of Israel was now humiliated under the violence of the Philistines, the enemy of God. As a result of this tragic event, David and his men, naturally, they weep, they mourn. But as we shall see, as we've seen here in his lamentation, the extent of David's sorrowing 
has not yet been revealed. He first had to deal with the presumptuous evil of the Amalekite, as we read in verses 1 through 16, who confessed to the killing of God's anointed, something that David himself would not even dare to do. And so after executing the presumptuous Amalekite, David contemplates more deeply, a little bit more deeply, David contemplates Saul and Jonathan's demise. So verse 17 begins his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, which immediately begs a number of questions. Why? Why so great a lamentation? One could understand, however, David's grief over the death of Jonathan. He loved Jonathan. Jonathan was his brother. But why so broken over the death of Saul? Saul actually was was David's arch enemy. He was a tyrant and a murderous king, murderer of God's own priests, decimated them and would have even murdered God's anointed David, the future king of Israel, if given the chance. Why would he be so sorrowful over the death of Saul? Why not over the death of Jonathan, as we would understand, but over the death of Saul? Now consider some of the possibilities. David knew that Saul, I believe David knew that Saul could have been a better leader. His greatness, however, was predicated upon his obedience to the commands of God and the counsel of Samuel. The tragedy of Saul was that he could have been great. But his narcissistic nature, his murderous, self-centered nature, prohibited that greatness. And that's the problem with mankind. That's the problem with mankind in general. Because if the human race could somehow obey the commandments of God, unto their ethical purity, that they would worship the true God, that they would fear God, reverence God, love God, if they would somehow obey God and love God, seeking ethical purity and holiness, their potential, mankind's potential, would be limitless. The world itself, the entire social construct would be a flourishing garden, much like the pristine garden of Eden before the rebellion. The tragedy of the human race is that they, like Saul, are narcissistically motivated with an insatiable desire to be as God, violently in rebellion against God. And so they seek to disobey God. They, like Saul, mankind, like Saul, unregenerate man, like Saul, desires to build to themselves a dynasty which negates God's glory while at the same time illuminating man's glory, if man would have any glory. While in the garden, Adam had the potential of being great. He was given all of the resources He was given all of the tools that he required in order to fulfill his human potential under God in obedience to God. He had everything. He had all of the trees of the field. He had everything at his disposal except that one tree. He had the potential to be great. The problem was that Adam was not satisfied with all that the Lord had bestowed upon him in much the same way as Saul. Saul was given Israel. But Adam wanted more, just like Saul. Saul wanted more. Adam wanted to be like God. He wanted to be God and to live as God and not to be under God. He wanted to reverse the hierarchical order that God had ordained in the councils of eternity. He wanted more. 
He was under the impression that he could achieve his highest potential apart from God. Energized by his own humanness, by his own fallen wisdom. And that's the problem with wicked man today. That's the problem with fallen man today. They seek to reach their pinnacle of potential apart from God and apart from his law. What Adam failed to recognize was that his frailty as a mortal creature being created in the image of God was incapable, even though created in the image of God, he was incapable of achieving anything apart from God, his creator and sustainer of his life. What is amazing, however, as we look at the human race, as we look at history itself, what is amazing is what man has actually accomplished in spite of his rebellion, which God had given to him providentially. So in spite of his rebellion against God, of course, which was only achieved by God's providential mercy and the grace of God, all for the benefit of God's elect, it is, it is absolutely amazing the extent in which man did achieve these great things. And so, whatever man has achieved in the space of worldwide history, in spite of himself, has been for the express purpose of blessing God and His people in the work of advancing the gospel of the kingdom. I'll give you an example. Just before the incarnation, and you wonder why was Christ incarnated within the scope of the Roman Empire? Why was He not born into the Assyrian Empire or uh, the Greek Empire or the Egyptian Empire? Why, why the Roman Empire? Well, just before the incarnation of Christ within that Roman Empire, when the gospel message would need to go throughout the entire world, God gave the pagan Roman world all of the intellectual resources, the geographical resources, the natural resources, in order to, to build one of the most advanced civilizations in the known world. The Roman roads, for instance, were some of the most advanced architectural advancements ever achieved during that period. And you ask the question, why? Why were the roads so important? Because it was for the express purpose, not for the Romans to travel to and fro, all roads leading to Rome, but it was for the express purpose of easily advancing the gospel throughout Europe, India, England, Ireland, China, and Africa, once the apostles came on the scene and evangelized the world. They used those roads. The development of industry, science, agriculture, technology, and medicine have been advanced significantly by mankind by the grace of God for the express purpose, and this is what we have to get into our puny little peanut brains, everything that we have in this world is given to us, all the technology is given to us for the express purpose of advancing the kingdom of God and glorifying Him so that His people, by His grace, can take dominion. You don't have your iPhone because it's easier now to contact your friends or to go shopping with Mr. Google. It's for the express purpose of advancing the gospel. Now, can you use it to shop? Fine. You want to talk to your friends? You want to go on chat? Fine. That's not what it was designed for because God designed it using man's ingenuity for the express purpose of advancing the kingdom. That's why we have the internet. Not so that we can have video games, but so that we can deal with others in other nations through Zoom meetings, evangelistic meetings and councils, 
The only reason why we have what we have today is because God has given it to us. Even as the Apostle says, all things are yours. Why are all things ours? For the express purpose of advancing His kingdom. And yet, with all of these blessings, mankind has not been able to reach the fullness of his potential as a result of his sinfulness, lawless rebellion, and narcissistic hatred of his fellow man. So, all of the technology, all of the resources that we have in this world are also used for evil. Can you imagine? I, I, I have to imagine. Could you imagine what man could accomplish if he was not in rebellion? Could you imagine? We went to the moon. We have satellites around the entire globe. We have airplanes, jets. We have all of these things. Could you imagine what we could have accomplished if we were not in rebellion against God? Could you imagine if we were obedient what we could accomplish? Could you imagine in your family what your family could accomplish if you, fathers and you, mothers, were obedient. Could you imagine what the churches as Christendom could accomplish if they galvanized together in obedience? It boggles the mind. David is lamenting over what Saul could have been in the same way that Christ laments over what Adam could have been. Remember, Saul is a great type of Adam, the first king yet falling to sin and apostasy. And so David, understanding as he weeps for Saul, but he also weeps for Jonathan, Saul's son. And of course, that's expected, since David and Jonathan were like brothers. But now, how are we to understand Jonathan as a representation of something gospel-related? Now, Saul is, is a picture of Adam, if Saul is a picture of Adam, then Jonathan must represent his son. And so who is the spiritual son of Adam? Adam had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain, of course, represents the reprobate, while Abel represents the elect. And so Adam's spiritual son is the elect of God, the eternal church which died with Adam when he sinned. Remember, when Adam sinned, all died. When Adam sinned, he died, and with him so did all of the elect. And Adam died. The whole human race died. Spiritually, they were dead. And that's what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all, all of the people of God, all the elect died, even so in Christ shall all the elect be made alive. Christ came to redeem those elect that died in Adam. And so David laments for Saul, a representation of Adam and his son Jonathan, a representation of the saints in Adam in the same way that Christ weeps over Jerusalem. Now consider for a moment the particulars of David's lamentation. He begins by likening his lamentation to a teaching tool. David is forever the teacher. You think about David, what he did in his whole life as king. He's teaching everybody. He's writing his psalms. He's teaching. He's laying out the law of God. He's a teacher. And here in the beginning of his tenure, he is teaching. So he begins by likening this lamentation, this incredible lamenting poem to a teaching tool which is to be preserved for the children of Israel. It is just not something that he's going to speak and then it's forgotten. No, it's going to be preserved. He even gives it a title which he attaches to a commandment for the children of Judah so that this event would never be forgotten or changed. Notice what he says, verse 18. He bade them, he's telling them, he's commanding them, teach the children of Judah the bow, or the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. 
Now the words the use of the is not there. It's actually teach the children of Judah the bow. Teach them the bow. David is actually telling the people that they are to teach the children of Judah this song of the bow. The bow was a weapon of warfare. Teach this idea of the warfare, the weapons of the bow, to the children of Israel so that their future generations would know the use of the bow. And it seems as if David is giving this lamentation the title of the bow as if to imply that this lamentation is the result of the battle where the shooting of the bow was done, which killed Saul, or at least began his demise, and that we are never to fall under the bow of the wicked, but we are to be those who are shooting the arrows of the bow. It is about warfare. It's about teaching the people of God how to deal with the wicked. The bow also may refer to Jonathan himself, since it is Jonathan's bow that is referred to time and time again in contrast to Saul's spear or Saul's sword. Now, whatever the meaning This is David's lamentation battle song. This is what it is. David wants the future generations to be skilled in warfare. And that's the message that we must take from this. I think we've become too lackadaisical. I think we have too lax in how we encourage others to study the scriptures, to take up the bow, to take up the sword of the word of God, and to get out there and make a difference in our communities, make a difference first in our families, make a difference in our marriages. Because our life is all about warfare. That's the life of the saint. It's all about warfare. It's about the internal struggle. It's about the external struggle. So David is saying, teach them about the bow. And this idea of the battle is so significant. Since there was initially a battle raging between God and Adam in the garden, where Adam dies in that rebellious battle, causing God to lament over the destruction of mankind and the loss of his people. David then reminds the people that this battle will be recorded in the book of Jasher. Now there's no book of Jasher in the canon. It seems, however, that there was a logbook of some sort, very significant logbook, detailing some of the battles of Israel kept by an upright man named Jasher. He maybe was a scribe of some sort. In fact, the name itself, the name Jasher, means upright. The only other place where this book is mentioned is in the book of Joshua, when after Israel's victory against the Amorites, the book of Jasher is mentioned. Notice Joshua 10, 12 and following. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajon, and the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies, is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hastened not to go down about the whole day. So obviously this was a very important event. These two battles deserve, therefore, a place in the book of Jasher, making them very significant. So obviously these two battles were very significant giving them a place, a deserved place, in the book of Jasher. And in a real way, these battles both ended in the establishment of a godly kingdom. The one with Joshua taking dominion, the other with Saul, out of the way, opening the door for David to take dominion. So these two battles, the one here that David is talking about, and the one that is recorded in Joshua, these two battles, we might call them dominion battle victories. 
And while Saul and Jonathan's deaths were tragic, they worked for the peace and the glory of God through the Davidic kingdom, which will come to pass very shortly. Now in verse 19, David begins his description of the tragic death of Israel's king and his noble lineage. Note David's use of imagery. Notice what he says in verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. How are the mighty fallen? Now David is not necessarily identifying Saul in his person as, as beautiful or the beauty of Israel, nor is he identifying Jonathan as the beauty of Israel. Now, David might be actually pointing to their office, the office that these men held, that they represented the beauty of the Israeli nation and the kingdom of God to the nations of the world. But now, as a result of Saul's rebellion, they have fallen from their position of might. How have the mighty fallen? They were once mighty. They were the beauty of Israel. They represented God's kingdom on earth in time and in history. And look at what happened as a result of rebellion. Now, personally speaking, David did regard Jonathan as a representation of Israel's beauty. And so there might be a double reference here, both the offices held and the person of Jonathan that held it. But now those that were mighty had fallen. And it is here with the prophecy of Hannah. And you have to understand how all of these things connect with the prophecy of Hannah many years before comes to its fruition here at this point. In Second Samuel chapter 1. In Second Samuel chapter 1, we find a connection to First Samuel chapter 2. Notice what it says here, verse 1 and following. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord, mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. And then she switches gears as she exalts God and then she addresses the wicked. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows, there it is, the bows of the mighty are broken. The bows of the mighty men are broken. How have the mighty fallen and they that stumbled are girded with strength. Note the connection between the title of David's lamentation and the prophetic utterance of Hannah that the bows of the mighty will be broken, even as Saul was broken. Now consider where the slaughter took place. David says that it was upon the Lord's high places, in verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. Well, in the seat of power. In other words, they were in the seat of power. And while in the seat of power... While Saul was in the seat of power, while he was in regal authority or as the king of Israel over all of Israel, he was in the high places of God. Even while he was in those high places, he was slaughtered. As so was Jonathan. Both were slain. And this is how God works against the wicked in authority. Whether it's in the realm of ecclesiastic authority or civil realm or the authority of families, God destroys the rebellious even when they dwell in high places. Make no mistake about it, just because people are in the seat of power, it doesn't mean they're immune to the vengeance of God when they rebel against God. And so while the wicked sit in the seat of power, they are still susceptible to being destroyed by God. The high and mighty towers of 
political, economic, or military might cannot save them. Those who are in the Congress today, in the Senate today, whether it's in the state or in the federal realm, they are not immune to God's vengeance. They might think they are. They might say, well, I've been in Congress for 47 years. Now I'm the president. Now I'm Teflon. Now I'm immune. No, no, no. God's vengeance can even touch you in the high places. And yet, it was Saul who was wicked. Not Jonathan. Sadly, Jonathan becomes collateral damage. In the same way as the elect became collateral damage when Adam fell. Or to put it in modern terms, American Christians or any Christian of any age may become collateral damage when the wicked are in authority. That's why the people mourn. Because they understand when the wicked are in authority, the people mourn. They understand that we can become collateral damage. We will not be immune to the ravages of wickedness. And this is why we have to fight against that wickedness. Give me a man who sincerely, openly, and actively supports Christianity and the Church of Jesus Christ with his words and with his action, his philosophy and his policy, and I will support him. Because none of our leaders, I don't care who they are, none of our leaders will ever be perfect men. They simply must defend the good and punish the evil. They must encourage liberty and dispense with any kind of tyrannical notion. They must punish the evil and support the good with both their doctrine and their policies. And just for the record, the best of our leaders will always disappoint. The only leader, the only king that will never disappoint is the Christ of God, even David. A man who God said... He's a man after my own heart. Even David disappointed. Because they're just men, simply men, who need a constant measure of grace to continue in righteousness. And that's what we must remember. We must pray constantly for a constant measure of grace to live righteously, to do what is right. David then seeks to minimize the shame by making sure the enemies do not hear of the tragic end of Saul and Jonathan. Because if they do, they'll just continue to rejoice, they'll, they'll blaspheme, they'll think of themselves so great, and they'll think God's so small. Notice what he says. And I, I read this as David begging, don't, don't tell them in Gath. Don't let those that were in Gath, when I defeated the giant of Gath, don't tell them in Gath. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Unless the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Unless the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Notice David's disdain for the Philistines by once again calling them the uncircumcised. He contrasts the daughters of the uncircumcised Philistines with the daughters of Israel in very much the same way as Christ identified them as the daughters of Jerusalem. He then calls upon the mountains of Gilboa where Saul was slain to withhold the blessing of God represented by the dew and the rain. Notice what he says. 
Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew. This is where they were slain. Let there be no dew there. I want no blessings there. This is a time of tragedy. This is a time of slaughter of the king of Israel. Let there be no dew. Neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is violently cast away. The shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. It's as if he was just a regular guy. He wasn't the king. This is a heart-wrenching. He's saying without a righteous civil ruler, there can be no blessing bestowed upon a nation. Saul brought so much blood guilt upon Israel that God's blessing could not be given until that land was cleansed of its guilt, its blood guilt. But then David, notice what he says. He praises both Saul and Jonathan for their valor in verse 22. And you say, well, wait a minute. Saul was a tyrant. He was killing the priests of, of Nob. He, he was a horrible man. How could David be praising him? But notice what he says. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. They were valiant men. They were men of valor. We see here that David is not only focusing upon the evils of Saul. And sometimes that's what we do. We look at our leaders, we focus, oh, he said that, he did the other thing, but then we forget all the things that he did that was good. And that's what David is saying. He says, I'm not going to focus upon the things that Saul did that was bad. He's focusing upon not the evils that Saul did, but on the positive things that he had accomplished. Remember, Saul had killed his thousands. He led Israel victoriously against the Philistines. Did he have his foibles? Did he have his problems at first? Yes, he did, of course, unravel entirely in madness. Yes. But that doesn't wipe out everything that he did that was good. And that's what David is saying. And while Saul's achievements might have paled in the face of David's 10,000, it was nevertheless done valiantly and initially, at least initially, it was done for the kingdom's advancement. David then reflects upon the good that these men represented in verse 23. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. And in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Notice how he's, he's saying, these men were valiant men. You can't look at these men as, as some, some low lives. So David is eulogizing these men in such a selfless fashion that ha- one has to ask, didn't Saul try to kill David time and time again? Was Saul lovely and pleasant in David's eyes? Was Saul swifter than an eagle and stronger than a lion in David's eyes? Now, it's easy to see why David would would view Jonathan in his fashion, but Saul, why would he say this about Saul? What are we missing? Well, this praise is not alien to how David viewed Saul all along from the very beginning. He always honored Saul. He respected Saul, and he, he hoped that he would be, I believe that he hoped, he was seeking to do so until it was evident that he could not, but I believe he was seeking to be reunited with Saul at the end. And perhaps he is lamenting that at least Jonathan and Saul, they were once at odds, if you remember, during the end of their lives. But now they're united. So Jonathan, who was once at odds with his father, is now united, sadly, in death, but united nevertheless. And and David is saying in his lamentation, yes, they're united, but even though they're united, I was never united with Saul the king, my father-in-law. And he's lamenting over that. He wanted reconciliation. 
This was a bitter lamentation. And David is sorrowing over the breach in their relationship despite the many attempts on his life, even as Christ laments over the fall of man. And understanding that others may not feel this way, especially after the tyranny and murderous actions of wicked Saul over the past years, he says, write it in a book. Write it in a book. And David admonishes the daughters of Israel to weep for Saul in the same way as Christ wept for Adam and apostate Jerusalem. So he calls them to remembrance of what Saul had done for them in bringing them honor in the past, even though he had done wickedness later on and gone down the road to perdition. But David, faithful David, would not stand for any reproach against the king. And so he calls them to lamentation for Saul in his office as king in particular. Notice verse 24. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Notice, weep over Saul. Don't rejoice over Saul. Weep over Saul, who clothe you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. He had done good for you at the first. Weep for him. And this is such a curious statement when we try to understand it from the gospel spiritual perspective. Because if Saul is indeed a type of Adam, did Adam ever clothed the elect in scarlet and ornaments of gold? It was easy to understand this if we were speaking of Christ, but did Adam clothe the elect in scarlet and other delights, ornaments of gold upon their apparel? And I think the only way that we can come to understand this is to realize that when Adam was created, he was clothed with scarlet and had an apparel of gold. Remember, Adam is the most. He was created as the most glorious creature of God's creation since he bears the image of God. And this is why time and time again, the question is asked in Scripture in Job 7.17, What is man that thou should magnify him and thou shouldest set thine heart upon him? Because he's been created in the image of God. Because originally he was clothed with, with scarlet robes in the most beautiful fashion. And David understood that in Psalm 8 and Psalm 144. What is man? He repeats this. That thou art mindful of him, and the son of man, that thou visiteth him. Lord, what is man, that thou takest knowledge of him? Or the son of man, that thou makest account of him? We see Adam's beauty described in Ezekiel 28, while he was still in Eden. We read this in verse 13 and following. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold. He had a priestly garment. He was the priest of God in the Garden of Eden. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. You had dominion, you had honor, you had majesty. You were to sub the earth, you, you were to cover, you were to protect. And I have set thee so, thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, thou was walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, thou was righteous in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. Now while Adam was stripped of the perfection of his beauty after the fall, Adam, mankind, you and me, we still retain some of that glory as a result of being created in the image of God with God's communicable attributes. We are not like the beasts of the field. We are not like the plants of the gardens. We have a unique constitution. Even ruined, we're glorious. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We still bear some of that image. 
We share the glory of the original Adam, even though we also share in the ruin of Adam after the fall. David then shifts his focus away from Saul to his beloved friend Jonathan in verse 25. First, he references Saul and Jonathan as the mighty warriors that have fallen and then concentrates on Jonathan alone. He says, How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant thou hast been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Here's a man agonizing beside himself, agonizing at the loss of his dear companion. And he uses this word distressed to indicate that he is afflicted to the point of having physical pain because the Hebrew word here, distressed, actually means an adversary. And he uses that word to imply that the emotional distress that David is experiencing is to him like an adversary. It's an enemy. It's destroying him. It's his enemy. He's so distressed. It's as if he's being besieged by a strong adversary that is shutting him up into this narrow strait of emotional affliction and sorrow and pain. He is in a prison of emotional turmoil that seems unescapable and that enemy is ever bearing down upon him. He is distressed. He calls Jonathan his brother. And here we see two men who share the same passion for God. They share the same vision for the future. They care about one another. They care together about God and His glory, about God and His majesty. And that's what really makes brethren. That's what makes the brothers brothers. Because true brotherhood is more than a bloodline. As important as that might be, True brotherhood is more than the bloodline. It is a spiritual connection. It is the bloodline that flows through the blood of Christ by the atoning power of grace upon the individuals. It's an engrafting into the true vine. That's what makes brethren. Jonathan was David's encouragement. He was his colleague in the battle against the enemies of the kingdom. In fact, he was more of a brother to David than David's seven biological brothers. Because that's what really mattered. Jesus tells us this. In Matthew twelve forty seven and following, Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered, and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples, and he said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. That is a bond that never can be broken. David's use of the word pleasant simply means agreeable. He was very agreeable to me. He has been unto me an agreeable individual. He cared about me as I cared about him. But then David says this, Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. The love of a man and a woman are of one type, while the love of brothers is of a completely different type. 
And what David is saying, he's expressing a bond of brotherhood that brought these two men in what I call kingdom harmony. They were in kingdom harmony. They understood what it meant to live in this world. They understood what it meant to live in the body of this death for the glory of God, mortifying sin and then going against the enemies of righteousness. They were in kingdom harmony. In other words, they had one focus. They had one goal. Their life was one. And that goal was to glorify God in order to bring the entire lamentation to its climax. David ends with this. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? The weapons of the king of Israel and the soul is now come to an end. The reign of the apostate king of Israel along with his weapons of warfare, his narcissistic tyranny and murderous exploits have finally perished making way for a new king with a new agenda, a new barrage of weaponry to be used not for man's dynasty, not for Saul's dynasty, but for God's dynasty, for the glory of God. And instead of building a dynasty to glorify sinful Adamic natural man, the future king of Israel will use his weapons of warfare to build a dynasty to and for the glory of the legitimate and righteous king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. David is now brought forth as the rightful heir to the throne to be hailed as king, but not without conflict. We shall discover that next when we continue in the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.